Welcome to the Slava Connection. Today, as part of our ongoing series on the war in Ukraine, we brought back Leonid Rogozin to give us a bit of an updated perspective on the conflict since we last spoke in March. So for this, I was joined by Taylor. Taylor, how are you? This is our first episode together. This is our first episode together. I really enjoyed it. My background is looking at Russian military, and so I, I have a special place in my heart for this this episode, at least. This war, the war in Ukraine, is a is really pivotal point in not only Russia's future, Ukraine's future, Europe's future. It, it has really rebalanced, I think, world dynamics and world power. So. Yeah, and you know, as the conflict continues to sort of unfold every day, there's so many moving parts, and Mr. Rogozin really kind helped us put a lot of things into working order and made it very easy to understand. So for any of our listeners who are also a little bit overwhelmed with the slew of headlines that we've been seeing in the last month, this episode is definitely for you. Take a listen. You're listening to the Slavic Connection, brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. The last time we had you on here was in March, and a lot has happened in the war in Ukraine since then and in Russia. I mean, we've had the mobilization, we've had the counteroffensive, we've had protests, we've had NATO application acceleration, we've had a lot of things going on. So let's start with the big one, right? Yeah. Yeah. So For the listeners, last month, Putin announced a mobilization of citizens, 300,000 up to a million, a little bit wishy-washy. And we've seen as a result of that a massive wave of Russians fleeing the draft, some domestic backlash. But we did want to ask, basically, what are some other implications of this move? What effects do you see coming out of this on Putin doubling down on Russia, on the war? Well, I think the, the, the first uh, the first thing that needs to be said is that the mobilization is uh, breaking the social contract, which underpinned this regime for the last two decades. And this informal social contract was essentially that uh, we, the government, don't meddle with your private lives and you, the citizens, don't meddle with our style of governance. And through that contract, uh, the the Russians were, for most of the time, benefiting because their living standards have improved during Putin's years immensely. It was the best times in the the memory of living generations in terms of the quality of life and also freedom in a way, freedom to to choose your way of life and to live where you want and do what, what you want. And uh, but now that's broken because uh, now politics, this adventurous politics is knocking on everyone's door. And people are families, millions of families are very literally put in, in the line of fire. So uh, so this uh, conformist majority, which is the, the foundation of Putin's regime, it's, it's its main support base. It has been, well, duped, I guess, uh, the, the right verb is by, by the regime. And the contract, uh, the social, this social contract is no longer there. And speaking about the figures, by the way, the target figure they, they announced um, uh, unofficially because it's it's not in the official documents is, as you correctly said, 300,000. Lately, uh, Shoigu, the defense minister, said that they have managed to draft uh, 200,000 people. Well, 200,000 people is the number of Russian uh, draftees, potential draftees, who have fled to Kazakhstan alone in the recent weeks. 
And we, we know that uh, over a hundred, at least uh, over a hundred thousand, but probably more than 200,000 fled to other countries, to Georgia, to Armenia, to Turkey, um, European Union countries and Southeast Asia. And we, we are talking about the, the most capable part of the uh, society uh, where we're talking about uh, young professionals who in a situation where they they would really feel that this is an existential battle for Russia, an existential battle for, for the Russian nation, uh, they would have probably defended Russia. But uh, since since they know that this war is essentially based on lies and it's it's waged by a far right regime in order to protect itself rather than Russia uh, or Russian people, they they just uh, choosing to just to get out of this war, not not to uh, take the other side, not to fight against Russia, but just to to stay out and stay neutral. So yeah, it, the the mobilization breaks the social contract and. Uh, with that, uh, we find ourselves in uh, uncharted waters. Social behavior, especially in uh, oppressive regimes, is, is notoriously difficult to predict. Anything can happen, essentially. So going off of the social contract, so this is with the Russian people. We see, we see what the ramifications of that are. But we're also now seeing, I think, what might have been a little bit more predictable was the blame game among officials and leaders of the war starting to turn badly for Russia. And so I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about this, maybe the internal dynamics at the top and what we could potentially see in the next coming weeks, maybe. I mean, there's been rumors of, of Shoigu not being Minister of Defense anymore. I mean, there's there's different things kind of going on. So I wonder if you could talk about maybe the leadership a little bit in context of this mobilization and the and the backlash. Yeah. Well, I think we were seeing a part of uh, Putin's entourage, and uh, I'm not sure how close they are to Putin, or as some people say, one of Kremlin's towers, trying to blame uh, Shoigu and uh, the chief of staff, Gerasimov, for the military defeats. And uh, it could be, I mean, you could consider it to be to be a um, blame game for the sake of blame game. But I think this is also the uh, the struggle for power in the Kremlin. We can definitely see that Prigozhin, Putin's chef, the so-called, uh, is especially interested in uh, advancing himself at the expense of uh, the country's military leaders. There were all those uh, videos came up of in the style of Ukrainian soldiers complaining about conditions. Uh, the, the Russian soldiers started um, telling stories of them being uh, mistreated and uh, kept in, in terrible conditions. Well, one of the uh, of those videos yesterday, which which looked quite staged, uh, but also as uh, Liberty radio journalist Mark Krutov pointed out, it featured people with Wagner Group uh, patches in the video who were pretending to be ordinary soldiers. So yes, there is uh, there is an attempt by Prigozhin. Uh, there is also an attempt by whoever is um, writing blog posts for Kadyrov, and who is definitely not Kadyrov. Kadyrov is not the person who would be using words like nepotism in his writing, which a uh, word most Russians don't know at all, not to mention Kadyrov. So, so yeah, we, we can see that a certain part of Putin's entourage is using the uh, crisis period in order to advance themselves at the expense of at the expense of Shoigu and, and Gerasimov. Whether that will work uh, or not, we, we don't know. Um, everything now hinges on the success of mobilization. 
and uh, we we don't know what the implications uh, uh, implication of the mobilization will be. We are not seeing those mobilized troops at the front line yet. We don't know what the uh, military strat the strategy is, so whether it will lead to advances on uh, uh, in, in other parts of Ukraine, whether it will lead to more fighting on the existing front lines, which is we don't know in the coming weeks or months. Uh, we will find out whether this mobilization was a success or, or not. And I think back in March, you were discussing how even in March, a lot of what Putin was doing, a lot of his actions felt like a gamble. And even now it feels a little bit like he's betting on, you know, sending more troops. That's fine. Bolstering the numbers. There's power in numbers. But many of these men that are being sent over are untrained. It, it makes you wonder if there's like the value of, you know, just sending as many people over there as possible versus sending men that are being given inadequate supplies and uniforms, weapons, what have you, and have never really seen action before. So I, I also definitely agree, you know, like in the next coming weeks, especially when we start seeing these numbers being sent over to the front, how that's all going to unfold, like in light of Ukraine's now very active counteroffensive. And to that point, sending hundreds of thousands of troops to the front lines in the dead of winter and not being able to maybe conduct warfare in the same way. Like, I wonder what the implications of that would be uh, of just having them hunker down and, and not have anything to do. Well, look, I'm, I'll be slightly skeptical about um, the narratives about those troops being uh, poorly trained and thrown into the battle without uh, adequate equipment, uh, without adequate support, for three reasons. The um, sources these narratives are coming are, first of all, these are Ukrainian and Western infowar sources. Second, as we are realizing now, it is uh, it is one of the parties in the Kremlin which which wants to undermine another party in the Kremlin. But um, you could also you, you may also think that uh, the Russian army itself, the Russian military propaganda itself, uh, would be interested in spreading the narrative of Russia being weak, of the Russian army being poorly trained at this particular moment before we uh, actually see those forces uh, arriving at the front line and, and doing something there at the front line. I don't think we uh, see uh, at least the, the, the main force there. We don't see all those uh, 200,000 uh, soldiers who, who have been recruited. Uh, we don't really know very well what is happening to a majority of them. And, and we don't know uh, whether uh, at the point when they appear on the front line, they will be uh, under-equipped or, uh, and under-trained. Or on the contrary, they'll be fairly well-trained and fairly well-equipped. It's, um, it's something I don't think anybody, uh, anybody knows except for intelligence organizations that has its own sources in the, in the Russian army. So again, I'd wait and see. It's, it's very plausible, I mean, knowing how the Russian regime functions, knowing all the corruption and the idiotic organization of all those processes in Russia may very well come true. It may very well turn out that uh, this, this force is badly demotivated uh, with low morale and unable and unwilling to fight the Ukrainians. But just as well, it, uh, Putin has um, surprised people many times, as we know. 
I mean, speaking of surprises, one of the things he also recently announced was basically, again, reiterating that he is not afraid to resort to nuclear weapons if it comes to that. So I wanted to get your take. Is this just more saber rattling? Because again, from the Western perspective, it, a lot of the responses have been a little bit poo-pooed. Jake Sullivan um, in Biden's administration did say that this was something that was being monitored. But has this heightened the risk? Like, do you believe that it's, you know, if we had to have this like rising thermometer, are, are we rising? Is this an actuality that it will come to that? I mean, in terms of statements emanated from the Kremlin, uh, I don't think any of us uh, is... Uh would, would consider this this particular source as particularly uh, reliable. And uh, as happened yesterday when uh, Biskov denied reports that there will be a speech by Putin and then uh, two hours later, Putin made a speech uh, to, to, the, to the teachers and was uh, televised. Unfortunately, the, the same may be, uh, could, could be the case with uh, nuclear weapons, uh, whether they are uh, threatening other countries with nuclear weapons or whether they are assuring everybody that uh, nuclear weapons are not going to be used. We we're hearing from the American side, which uh, which is perceived as a more trustworthy side, uh, that uh, the movements of Russian nuclear weapons are being well uh, monitored. That uh, you know, Russian nukes are being are in storage now. That there is uh, no indication that they are being moved to uh, to the positions from which uh, the, the strikes could be under, undertaken. But um, well, again, uh, we we. Uh, we just pray and hope that, that those sources are correct, that they, they, uh, they are capable of uh, monitoring those moves uh, very, very accurately. Of course, there is, um, uh, there is only so much they can monitor. It's, uh, it's enough to have a, a very small bomb to create a huge havoc. And, and surely, surely Russia is capable to hide at least something from the Americans, as, as the Americans are able to, to hide things from Russia as well. So, yeah, it is, uh, it is a bit of a game of uh, Russian roulette. Uh, the, um, the nuclear threat is there on the table uh, that, uh, that the Kremlin has made very uh, clear. And I don't think any, any further statements from, from the Kremlin will uh, change that fact. But for now, we are waiting for, for the results of the mobilization and, uh, and how it plays out on the front line. And uh, at least until then, I guess, the conversation, the, the narrative about uh, Russian using nuclear weapons can possibly wait. I guess we can pivot here also just to Ukraine, especially over the summer. We saw, I guess it almost came as a surprise to a lot of people, the counteroffensive that they launched against Russia. They were taking back territory bolstered by a lot of aid from the West, from the United States. Do you believe that they're, you know, if this mobilization effort, once it comes to fruition, will they be able to hold the line, I guess, in a way? Will they be able to meet this like new challenge, do you believe? Well, that, that's a question to a military expert, which I'm not. That's fair. I have no idea, <laughs> to, to be honest. And I don't think even military experts have enough information about uh, Russian army's current capabilities. We, we're seeing some very optimistic uh, assessments by hawkish military experts. We're seeing uh, more cautious assessments from people like uh, Michael Kaufman. There is a general understanding that understanding now that uh, Russia's uh, resources are quite limited, 
but also, as I remember in the past, these uh, this narratives were supported by the belief that general mobilization is uh, not sustainable, that uh, Putin will, will not be able to pull it off. Well, again, it's, it's now a question where he's, uh, he's going to be able to pull it off and whether those troops will be eager to fight. I mean, we can see all sorts of scenarios. We can see a scenario in which uh, these uh, this people are well motivated and uh, willing to fight and, and they, they fight because they feel that this is really an existential conflict for Russia because they're convinced in it and by the propaganda or they, they have sort of inner conviction about it. But uh, just as well, it can end up in this uh, massive uh, kind of work to rule strike, something that's called Italian strike in Russian language when people essentially sabotage the um, the government and sabotage Putin by uh, showing no initiative, by doing uh, only, uh, only what they've been told to do and less than that, and ultimately by simply fending for themselves instead of being uh, part of a national effort. So, so yes, I can, I can also see a scenario where, uh, whereby slaves of the population and uh, first of all the military and then the political establishment will just leave Putin abundant and lonely in the, in the Kremlin, sitting there in the Kremlin waiting for his fight. I'd like to get your take on, uh, we've talked a little bit about these narratives, these competing narratives. Uh, I mean, we've talked about nuclear war, we've talked about NATO, the narrative of NATO expansion and, and things like that. And so from the beginning of the war, we've seen these very different narratives coming from the Kremlin of like, this is an existential crisis, but Russia is strong, but NATO is is expanding and, and threatening our existence. And we, we've got this like back and forth of what this war is about and the narratives that the Kremlin is, is telling the Russian people. Could you give us a little bit of, of an indication of are these narratives even resonating with Russian people? What What is the reception of them? Are people apathetic? How are they? How are they impacting or influencing what the Russian people think about this war? Right. I think there is there is more or less a consensus, at least in the within the conformist majority in the Russian society, and of course with the ultranationalist minority, that uh, the West um, is actually hostile and does uh, present a threat to Russia, and that the the ultimate goal of the West is to to destroy Russia. People are convinced, and this conviction is uh, is pretty pretty difficult to change. What is now happening is uh, that the, the sizable liberal minority has been, has been very disillusioned with the West, largely because of the story of the uh, draftees who are explicitly banned from, from crossing uh, the European borders, from uh, fighting refuge in EU countries. And now there are more stringent policies being introduced, and which I believe uh, might be outside the rule of law even. Uh, when Russian nationals are being banned from uh, boarding flights uh, inside the Schengen zone, when people with uh, humanitarian visas uh, are being uh, banned from entering countries like Poland or Estonia. Uh, so yeah, that, uh, uh, of course, the expectation among the Russian liberals is that uh, we are allies of the West, uh, allies of Ukraine. But there is there is so much xenophobia on social networks, and uh, and the policies uh, don't really aim at uh, at having those Russian allies. It it seems like the the, the West is convinced that they don't uh, need the Russians on board to, to to defeat Russia, and that's that's a very um, dangerous line of thinking, exactly because of the nuclear weapons. 
Because if you find if, if you find yourself in a situation where instead of being the allies of Ukraine and the West, uh, millions of people in Russia choose to be neutral and uh, decide that well, this is a war between Putin and and the West between Putin and Ukraine. So go on. I mean, plague on both of your houses. Uh, that's that's uh, a kind of narrative that I'm seeing emerging on on Twitter and elsewhere uh, within the Russian opposition milieu, and uh, and then of course the uh, pro-Putin majority, even when they get uh, disillusioned with Putin, uh, this is exactly the kind of narrative that will that, that they will find most correct and most suitable. Going back to the the West, and I would say maybe specifically the Western European countries that immediately, as we were seeing Russians trying to get out of Russia, they immediately said, sorry, we're not welcoming you. There's no visas we're allowing. Do you think that this policy, like, do you think the policy should have been uh, not reversed, but do you think it should have gone a different way that maybe this would have facilitated a different mobilization strategy in Russia. I, I, my opinion is that the, the visa bans were, were not constructive in helping and helping in any way that, that some of the Western European countries should have maybe facilitated more of movement. What are, what are your takes on, on that policy, those policies? I think there is a, uh, there is a general uh, issue with the West not having any vision of future Russia not uh, communicating to to their own uh, audiences and to the Russian audience what what they want to do with Russia. So in, in the absence of such communication from Western leaders, uh, what the Russians, and especially liberal Russians, are hearing is, is uh, communication from the hawkish uh, party in the West. And that's, that's all they uh, talk about, the so-called decolonization of Russia, which uh, Russians interpret as the destruction of the Russian state. So, I mean, there is there is a general consensus in Russia that uh, people want uh, further destruction of the state and uh, fragmentation of the state. And then uh, there there are people like uh, the the head of NATO's uh, Stratcom office in Riga, Yanis Sartz, uh, the, the main strategic communications office in NATO, who makes a point about appearing in uh, at a major NATO meeting in Sox, which. Uh, says uh, trample on the Russians and uh, or uh, Ben Hodges, the former commander of the American troops in uh, Europe, who basically talks openly about dismembering Russia, about uh, uh, dividing Russia into, into several parts. So, so yeah, it's, it's, it's a problem. The uh, alienation of Russia, the unwillingness to, to find uh, any, any allies in Russia, the unwillingness to even think about uh, a democratic Russia. There are people uh, in the Baltics, uh, people like uh, Thomas Henry Kilvis and others who are convinced that uh, the uh, end goal is um, not a democratic Russia. It is a, uh, it is a contained Russia. Uh, which which is basically Russia turning into Iran on steroids, and and that's of course very convenient to uh, to both the hawkish side in the West because uh, they guarantee their uh, good life and uh, good salaries for for the next three hundred years, and and then in uh, and then on Putin's side that uh, guarantees the survival of Putin's regime because nothing is as uh, stable as a oppressive regime under American and Western sanctions. 
Cuban regime is now, what, uh, uh, 60 years old. The North Korean regime is now 80 years old. So there, there are forces on both sides of this fault line that are interested in um, in this development, but I will come at the expense of A, Russians, uh, B, uh, East Europeans, uh, C, all the Europeans um, and Americans as well. I guess I'm sort of pondering because this was even discussions we were having back in March of even early sanctions, early hits against Putin that ultimately ended up affecting average Russians that while there is, you know, the, the sort of punishment that comes along with what Putin's actions, there were consequences that we're speaking about now that affect diplomacy and, you know, lower level interactions between our two countries. And so I'm wondering what is left now for the West? Is it to continue hitting Russia with sanctions? Is it to continue enforcing blocking visas? Uh, what else, I guess, is there to do? Because Putin clearly has not been deterred by anything that's been going on. And even with the sanctions, Russia's economy is still continuing, barring, you know, again, the lower income, poorer Russian populations are the ones that have actually kind of suffered the most, it feels like. Right. I, th- I think there's uh, not that I'm against the sanctions. I'm, I'm for the sanctions. But um, I guess there is a consensus uh, that the, the sanctions are not achieving the aim of um, uh, stopping Putin, stopping the war. And then uh, the, the the time factor kicks in and uh, and we were not sure how, how it will play out uh, with Russia and how it will play out with the, the Ukraine and the West. There, there are several factors. One is, one of course, is, is the the military situation. If if Ukraine continues to drive the Russians to route the Russians from the Ukrainian territory at the same pace, and the Russians are not able to defend themselves, that's uh, that's an ideal scenario. Unless, of course, Putin will start thinking about nuclear weapons again. But uh, if they if they continue to advance, uh, then at some point uh, the Russians will be just routed from the Ukrainian territory and. Uh, and for, for, for most people involved in this conflict, this, this is it. So, uh, Russia was defeated and then Ukraine was liberated. However, uh, there is this uh, mobilization again. We are, as Michael Goffin says, we are in, in, in uncharted waters and so we, we don't know how it will play out. We will see. We need uh, a few months to, to see uh, how, how, how it's going to work uh, on the front line and also domestically in Russia. But uh, the second factor in which uh, time is on Putin's side is, is the coming winter. The, the coming winter in Ukraine, which, uh, which may well be uh, pretty catastrophic, uh, especially for people uh, living in the frontline regions. And um, then it's going to hit the, uh, the European countries quite badly. Um, I'm talking to you from Riga, from a, an unheated uh, flood in Riga in, already towards the middle of uh, October. And uh, we're hearing uh, alarming reports from uh, Germany overspending on, on gas and other fuel. We are hearing similar reports from other countries. We saw this uh, major American folks uh, like Michael McFaul being upset today about the Saudis who decided to, to support the reduction in, in the oil output. And uh, as a result, the, the Russians will be profiting more from oil instead of profiting less. And this uh, economic uh, game uh, 
again, and, and none of us would be able to predict very accurately at this point how it will play out uh, towards uh, towards the end of uh, winter. And when you talk to politicians here in uh, in Eastern Europe or in, in the European Union, well, they they just don't know. And I'm not sure in uh, whether in, in in smaller countries like in Baltic countries uh, they actually have a good plan to handle the situation. Honestly, thank you for reminding me even about the gas situation. Uh, I felt like I was so caught up in the Nord Stream 2 sabotage news that came out two weeks ago that it's almost easy to forget that winter is in fact coming and Europe's dependence on Russian oil and gas is is very much on the line here. But there's so many pressing things that almost take up a space on our plates that it, it's easy to forget that there's an actual concern of quality of life for a lot of Europeans that are were dependent on, on this oil and gas that they no longer have access to. I mean, the, the, the Russians also have this uh, nuclear option in terms of energy wars, which they haven't used. They're still supplying uh, gas to Europe by Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And I mean, on the one hand, uh, you'd think they, they can't really stop it because uh, uh, that's the gas which goes to Russia's supposed um, allies in Europe, to Hungary, to Serbia, uh, to, to the rest of the Balkans, to, to Austria, which, is, which has been pretty neutral in this whole conflict. But then we, we can see that Putin is quite unhinged and Putin, about Putin, we can definitely say that he's fighting an existential battle and that's how he perceives it, whether it's, uh, it's, it's his own personal existential battle or Russia's existential battle, but he's, uh, he thinks he's Russia. So everything's possible. He can cut that uh, gas off as well in a difficult situation. But for, for, for now, at least, they seem to be convinced that uh, they, they'll manage to, to bring enough troops and, and repel the Ukrainian offensive. That, of course, will result if they, they start being successful on the front line, then the West will supply more weapons to Ukraine, more HIMARS uh, and so on. And uh, there'll be a new level of escalation. have a, a question on international pressure on allies and, and maybe some of the international actors that are affecting the situation. Um, a couple of weeks ago, we saw the, the meeting with Modi kind of go badly for Putin. We saw China is starting to maybe take more of a arm's length stance on this conflict. And so do we see any other international actors or any other international pressures that could potentially open conversations or open communications with Putin to keep this from escalating further? Right. Well, I think I think in terms of nuclear weapons, the pressure from China and India, if it is actually coming in this respect, it could tone down the rhetorics emanating from Moscow. They they can choose to be to to be more cautious uh, about making nuclear threats in order not to antagonize uh, these these big uh, countries which are also consuming Russian fuel because they definitely until until the very last moment Putin will not want uh, China and India to decide that no no this is a madman who is who is going to destroy humanity with his nuclear weapons and uh, for. For our survival, we, we need to join efforts with the West in, in confronting him. Uh, so he will avoid him. But uh, does it prevent uh, the, the nuclear weapon option? Does it prevent him from, uh, from actually using nuclear weapons when he feels cornered uh, and uh, when he feels that this is his last resort? I don't think so. I mean, at that point, he will not, be, will not care about uh, China or India and what they say and think. So uh, 
it's it's a it's very difficult uh, uh, balancing act. Uh, for, for now, for now, it, it looks like the West continues to to walk with with this madman to to the edge of the cliff. The um, I guess uh, behind closed doors, various scenarios are being discussed, and again, we we may hope that uh, the the Americans, the British intelligence, has access to top level sources in the Kremlin, and uh, that they are able to uh, monitor accurately uh, the discussions uh, and the, the the moods in the Kremlin. So they'll be able to back off uh, at at a, at a critical moment. And and yes, there's there's a total pos- uh, there's a total possibility that at this critical moment, uh, Putin will be abandoned by by Russians, will be abandoned by the rest of his establishment, and he will be physically unable to press this button because it's there is protection from from one person pushing the button. But but yeah, at the same time, at least from from the public statements, uh, from from all this uh, jingoism which uh, the Western media is filled with, and uh, the statements by uh, government officials in various countries, it doesn't look like there is uh, there is there is a good strategy for for that uh, final moment, which leads to 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 terrible scenarios. One is one is uh, Putin actually uh, pushing the button, and the other is uh, the West backing off at the last moment. And if it does it uh, at this point, then it's um, I mean, winner takes it all situation. Then Putin really, really wins and defeats not just Ukraine but defeats the West as he hoped to. I actually wanted, wanted to quickly get your opinion. I don't know if you saw the recent article from Alexei Navalny that was published in the Washington Post about the future of Russia and these sort of very vague outline, but general recommendation that the future of Russia involves a parliamentary republic and that less involvement from the West, more being built, Russia should be built by the Russian people. What are your thoughts on, on that piece? Well, it's, it's a popular theory, which, which is very, also very common in Ukraine. That the presidential power is uh, is harmful for the, those countries. There is better. Both countries should be parliamentary republics, and never again they they should have a, a president who uh, has almost uh, royal uh, monarchic powers. It may or may not be true. Uh, we we would know. Uh, the, the the reason the reason why the presidential post appeared in Russia in the first place was that uh, back in the 1990s, people who genuinely believed in democracy, who were writing this constitution, they, they believed that such a big country as Russia, it should be more like more like the United States or France, and that there would be that there should be the presence power because uh, people tend to know to, to vote for names, not for ideologies. And uh, it is uh, just personalities who represent various uh, ideologies. And various uh, various visions of uh, future. Maybe maybe parliamentary democracy uh, without the president would be would be better for Russia. But for now, I think it's uh, it's kind of beyond the point. We we can we can talk about uh, those uh, hypotheticals at this moment. But uh, the the problem we we're facing now is is not is not that. The problem is uh, is how to get the conformist majority in Russia out of this uh, quagmire. How to offer them uh, a vision of Russia, a vision of their own future that uh, doesn't involve them being killed in uh, in a war with neighboring countries, doesn't involve them being killed in a civil conflict in inside Russia in civil war, but um, does involve uh, Russia being. Uh, 
uh, wealthy and uh, democratic state and hopefully uh, a part of a broader uh, European and Western community. This is, this is what needs to be uh, talked about uh, rather than not so small, of course, I mean, I'm not dismissing it, but uh, uh, the details of the of the future Russia, which uh, which uh, actually can wait. <laughs> but it's uh, it's admirable that uh, such a personality based organization as Navalny's movement is actually uh, is actually um, talking about parliamentary democracy uh, without a president. Yeah, I mean, it's nice. Yeah, like the big far off future. But I, I completely understand your point that there is a sort of pressing problem right now and we'll deal with what comes afterwards. I actually did not want to let you go before um, speaking about Donbass, um, because that was sort of the one other development in the last few months was that these sham referendums have not been internationally recognized, but on at least to Putin, uh, the eastern part of Ukraine has been annexed and made a part of Russia. So that sort of made the headlines and it wasn't recognized and it feels like it's petered off. But I did sort of want to know what, at least from your perspective, what happens in those regions now? Because you have all of these Ukrainians that are now stuck in this part of Ukraine that's now Russia, but it's Ukraine. And, and what are they facing now as, again, we're facing mobilization, we're facing more um, breakouts of battle in those areas? What What's going to happen to the people that are there? Well, well what I'm hearing uh, is... Um... Uh, after the start of the mobilization, which uh, which which started in those regions as well, people uh, started fleeing and mass into the Ukrainian territories. Then there was this missile attack on a column of refugees leaving the Russian-occupied territory, which was probably undertaken by the Russians, although they they blamed the Ukrainians. And and then the next thing that happened is this something akin to a humanitarian crisis at the border borders when and the Ukrainians from occupied regions instead of going to Zaporizhia they they started traveling via Russia to to the Baltic countries and and then huge queues emerged on the on the border of Latvia and Estonia. And people were sleeping in the cold. People were waiting for days and days on end. In Pskov region, the uh, the governor and the Liberal Party, which is active there, the Yablaka, were organizing food supplies and uh, trying to warm people up. Uh, and so, yeah, basically, I guess even those who who were supportive of uh, of the Russian occupation and uh, from anecdotal evidence uh, from the from the Ukrainians I'm talking to, it looks like there there's still many of uh, people like that. They, they could be supporting Russia taking over those regions in theory, but uh, uh, of course they, they also want to, to leave and they, they don't want to be on the front line. They don't want to serve in the Russian army. Uh, so, so they are fleeing. I mean, generally, we, we can be sure that in, from, from the voting patterns in the past, we can be sure that in Zaporizhia and Kherson regions, we've never had a pro-Russian majority. It is doubtful, but not implausible, that there was a pro-Russian majority in Donetsk and Lugansk regions. And, uh, and yes, in, uh, after 2014, uh, most local elections resulted in the Ukrainian-held territories. Most local elections resulted in uh, pro-Russian parties winning local, uh, local councils. Uh, but the 24th of February brought us into a, a very different reality whereby it is hard for the most pro-Russian of the Ukrainians to, to remain on the, on the Russian side. I've been following for, for some time the, the blog and uh, media outlets run by the former finance minister in Yanukovych's government, uh, Alexander Klimenko. 
partly because uh, I was involved in a Sherman, Sherman investigation and he features in it to some extent. It is a pro-Russian politician based in Moscow now who fled in 2014, a super like orthodox fundamentalist pretends to be uh, pro-Russian to, to his to his bones. But his, his media outlets uh, since the 24th of February, they have taken a clearly pro-Ukrainian position because uh, just uh, just inconceivable for for anyone in Ukraine except uh, except people who have made a very conscious choice to tear up with with Ukraine for for good to 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 be supportive of this uh, so in in Ukraine in Donetsk and uh, Lugansk region in in Kherson and uh, Zaporizhia I'm I'm basically seeing the situation when the Kremlin no longer cares where, whether there is support or not they're just fighting for territory. Who will live in this territory? I don't think they care much. Well, I mean, you've certainly given us a lot to think about. I appreciate you've tied a lot of threads together and, uh, you know, helped us make sense of a lot of the things. It's been a very busy last couple of weeks. Things are developing. So we appreciate you really taking the time. Give us some points to look to as, as we watch things develop. It's a lot to take in. I, I try not to be cynical. Um, I try not to be pessimistic about the situation. I'm hoping that we can reach a conclusion to this soon. I don't know what that looks like. I don't think anybody really has any good indications of what that looks like. I think we're all just holding on as best as we can. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry that I'm, I'm sounding so depressing, but uh, <laughs> that's how I'm feeling. I, I, don't, I don't think we can paint war in a positive light, so... <laughs> Definitely. Thank you so much for, for joining us and, and happy to have you back as this progresses. Yeah. Well, th- thank you. Thank you, guys. It's, it's, it's been a pleasure and also helps me to, to formulate my, my own thoughts. Yeah. Thank you so much. The Slavic Connection is part of the Texas Podcast Network. The conversation is changing the world. Brought to you by the University of Texas at Austin. The opinions expressed in this program represent the views of the hosts and the guests and not of the University of Texas at Austin. For more information, please visit us online at slobxradio.com. Thank you. The Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies condemns the Russian Federation's military invasion of Ukraine. We stand in support of the people of Ukraine who are fighting for their lives and sovereignty in the face of the unjustified invasion by Russian military forces. 